this is my baby. This is my child. This is, you know, this is mine. They immediately took her away, bundled her up, and put her in a basket on the other side of the room. And they didn't want me or my husband to touch her. Oh my. <laughs> oh my. I felt like a lion. I felt very empowered. I felt like I went into a battlefield and came out the victor. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Carmen, an international board certified lactation consultant. And I'm Ruth Green, an international full spectrum doula. And this is the Having a Baby in China podcast. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The views expressed here are the personal opinions of individuals and do not necessarily reflect any official stance or recommendation by having a baby in China. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Ruth. Good to see you. Yeah, we're excited about what we have today. Yeah, I see we have a guest today. We do. So we're going to do things a little bit different. So today we have Rebecca One. And what struck me about Rebecca's story is that she had two babies within about two years. Is that correct? Yes, less than two years. And she had different things and like a lot of things were very similar and a few things were very different. And so we wanted to kind of do a compare and contrast between two different pregnancies and two different births. So thank you, Rebecca, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are in China, what your family looks like, and yeah, just a little summary? Sure. Well, like I said, my name is Rebecca Wen. I'm from Colorado in obviously USA, and um, mm. I've been in China for about five years. Uh, my husband is Chinese. He's from Guangzhou, and we met in Yunnan and Dali, so we've actually only been married for about mm. three years. Well, he said we had two kids in under two years, so <laughs> we moved fast. <laughs> but yeah, we, we actually live in Dongguan currently, and we usually stay pretty near to his like family home, pretty usually in the like Guangzhou area. Mm -hmm. Dongguan has a special place in my heart because that's actually the my first city that I lived in when we first moved to China back in 2003. Do you know? Like I'm celebrating 20 years that I've been in China. Wow. <laughs> You're right. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> also, 20 years that I've been married. Fun wow. fact about. And you guys actually even know some of the same people. It was, <laughs> it was really funny to find the connection between you two. Yeah. All right. Well, Rebecca, can you think back to the first time that you became pregnant and what that looked like for you? Well, with my daughter, my daughter, I had some complications in the first trimester. Okay. I started spotting around week mm. four or so. And I basically was spotting throughout the entire first trimester. Mm. So I ended up going to a lot of different hospitals to try to find a doctor that wouldn't just look at me and say, oh, well, you're bleeding. So you're going to lose the baby. There's nothing we can do for you. Mm. But mm. here you can try this hormone therapy or you can try this, but really there's nothing that's going to help. So do you just want to like take the baby out now and get it over with? Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. was kind of the reaction. So so for the first 12 weeks or so, it was very distressful. I didn't have any like morning sickness or anything like that, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I was just under a lot of stress Yeah, because of this, you know. So can I ask, were you trying to be pregnant or were you, um, was it a surprise? It was a surprise. Mm, okay. So were you excited when you found out or was it, yeah? I was horrified when I found out, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I wasn't married at the time. And mm -hmm. I was honestly very, very ashamed that I had become mm -hmm. pregnant and was very, very upset about it. But my husband was, he was so unbelievably excited and just Aww. overjoyed at this prospect. And his just excitement and the people that I was staying with, because I found out I was pregnant, I was actually in Japan. Oh, mm. wow. I had no plans to mm. return to China and get married, none whatsoever. <laughs> But the people I was staying with in Japan were just like, wow, you're going to have a baby. This is amazing. This is incredible. Mm. Like, so you're going to go back and get married, right? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go and do that because he's so excited and you guys are so excited. Mm. And it just, I wanted mm -hmm. her to have a dad. Mm -hmm. So I traveled back when I was about seven, seven weeks pregnant, which the trip back was very difficult. Like I had a stopover in South Korea. It was very late stopover. And mm. 
the next morning when I went to catch my flight into China, they said that city has gone into quarantine. So you need to, you need to change your flight right now. So I ended up using all of my like wedding money (laughs) to book a new flight. Oh, wow. And I think that honestly, the stress of that day is, is a lot of what started me bleeding Mm. because I, I really noticed it picked up a lot Mm. over that, that like weekend when I was traveling. What year was that? It was 2020, everyone's favorite year. <laughs> what month? Uh, it was March 2020. I've, I actually okay. came back into China, I think February 26th. Okay. And she was born okay. October 4th. So, and then you flew back and then where did you go? And did you get married quickly when you got back to China? Yes. We got married a week yeah. after I got back. <laughs> <laughs> I flew I flew into Guangzhou. Okay. And, you know, we just lived with my husband's family for the rest of the first trimester and then okay. found some, some other place to live for the rest yeah. of the time. So then, yeah, what, what kind of hospitals did you find and what, how did you choose the hospital that you stayed, you know, continue to go? The first one that I went to was a public hospital, but they insisted that we go to the international branch, like the, the okay. VIP international area. But they were not able to help. And my husband's family is very blue collar worker, very, very poor. And so they were just flabbergasted at the prices. And so mm. after that, they only wanted me to go to the very, very public local clinics. Mm. So I ended up going to four or five different local clinics in different parts of Guangzhou. But I wasn't happy with the way they were treating me and there were issues with them like letting my husband come in or something and I needed Mm, him for translation and for support because it was such a strange environment I'd never been to a hospital in China Mm -hmm, I didn't mm -hmm. speak any Chinese at the time so I really needed someone who I knew had my best interests Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that was in in the beginning it was all these small public hospitals Mm -hmm. and we tried to get into a couple international clinics but because of COVID Mm-hmm. They would not let my husband come in and they started giving us a bunch of hoops just to jump through, just to get basic checkups. Mm-hmm. And this was all in that first, that first trimester. So I went to basically a different hospital every week for a while mm. and just to try to figure out what this bleeding was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the end, we moved to a different part of Guangzhou and went to a hospital that's pretty unique because it's semi-private, semi-public. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it has a lot of like um, Western doctors and Western medicine and a very like Western feel. Like the facilities are very large and clean and all this kind of stuff, but also not the same price tag as a true private international hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where we ended up actually giving birth. Okay. And then for your second pregnancy, you were back in Guangzhou, correct? Mm hmm. And so did you just go straight back to that hospital or did you look around again? No, actually, when we went to the hospital, the actual day when I was in labor, they tried to refuse my husband entry and he got in such an argument with the like delivery ward that it got to the point where they were going to call the cops and everything. And, and, so, oh. and then oh, goodness. Uh, I don't know how he resolved the situation. I just know that they were that they were saying that they were going to get the call with cops, and then they had a different admin come down, and then that admin was just like, "Just let him in. Just let him in. She's foreign, and none of us speak mm-hmm. English, so just let him in." But then the next day, they came to us, and they were. We chose that hospital partially because we had a friend who had. She was also foreign with a Chinese husband, and she'd had two children at that hospital. And it was very inexpensive. They were very good to her. It was mm-hmm. a very simple labor for her. But with us the next day, when they came to us, they told my husband, you know, they basically want to charge us for the VIP, everything. And my husband and I, of course, couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he had to get in another argument with the doctors to to let me out of the hospital the same day within 12 hours of the birth and pay. And then he just finally said, well, you can keep her here, but I'm not paying you anything. And so they said, okay, here are the discharge papers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh man, how so, stressful. So okay. he was not excited to go back to that hospital. <laughs> mm. And so, and for the second birth, I felt like my first birth was quite easy, actually. I never felt like I was in an overwhelming amount of pain. I never had an epidural. I never felt like I needed one. 
Um, it was pretty much just my husband and I in the room and I just kind of did what I needed to do. And, and I mm-hmm. felt actually very empowered after the birth. Mm-hmm. So I felt like the second one was certainly going to be just as easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I felt like I, I don't need to go to a nice big fancy hospital because we were even poorer at the time of the second birth. So we just decided to go to a local women and children's hospital Okay. For the mm-hmm. actual, for the birth of my second child. And so did you do your prenatal at the same hospital that you gave birth at for your second pregnancy and second birth? So we actually did almost no prenatal for the second pregnancy at okay. all. Basically, I just took the like folic acid and I think I did maybe two or three tests and then mm-hmm. maybe two or three ultrasounds because we just felt like it was excessive how many checks that they wanted with the first mm-hmm. pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and we couldn't really decide on a hospital until literally I was 36 weeks, I think. And mm. we decided on which hospital to go to. Yeah. Okay. So the first time you were kind of going from hospital to hospital, trying to find someone who would support you in a caring way that wanted to support the pregnancy and not just... Mm-hmm. And also another really important thing was that your husband would be allowed in, right? Yeah. And then, but then in the actual birth, things didn't go as smoothly, which we'll talk more about in a minute. So therefore you didn't want to go back to that one for your second one. So then how many hospitals did you try out with the second pregnancy? I think for the second pregnancy, we tried another three or four hospitals in total. And the only reason we settled on the one that we settled with was because we did not go to see an obstetrician. We had a friend who knew the delivery doctors. And so we went there and we met directly with them and they took me into the delivery ward. And those doctors were the ones that dealt with me. And so I felt very comfortable with them because I saw the environment and I knew who they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the actual people who would be there on that day. And they turned on the air conditioner. The first hospital refused to turn on the air conditioner during the birth. Everything. They're just like, no, you just need to be hot. (laughs) My husband was standing there like fanning me with a magazine. Like he's lifting me up and holding me in position during contractions. Then stopping, dropping everything, fanning me with a magazine and giving me water. (laughs) Like the whole time. So this one went in there. Yeah. This one, we went in there and just for a basic exam. And I was the only person in the room. It's a small public hospital. And they were like, oh, here, let me turn on the AC. And you can just relax in here yeah. for a little bit. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny yeah. how there can be a small thing that we're just like, oh, that that made all the difference, you know? And yeah. Yes. And for clarity for listeners, like typically when you go to your prenatal checkups, you go and see the OB doctors. And so then those typically aren't the doctors that are in the delivery room. So when you go and deliver in the delivery room, they have a team of midwives and and doctors that, you know, those are the ones that are going to deliver. So yeah, like you got to meet directly with that team and know who they were. Exactly. And know that they were okay with, I mean, the first time I met them, I was like, can they do delayed cord clamping? Can they do skin-to-skin contact right away? Will they do an episteotomy or will they just let me tear? Like what, will they let him be in the room? And to be able to actually mm-hmm. be face-to-face with a doctor who would be there yeah. and have yeah. her say, yeah, we can do all of that. You have nothing to worry about. Yeah. Like whole team, like just, you have nothing to worry about. I was like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. oftentimes you'll meet with the OBs that they'll say, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. But then they're not yeah. the ones that are actually in the room. So exactly. you know, they're promising something that they can't even follow through with. Mm-hmm. Did you experience the same bleeding with your second pregnancy as with the first? No, no. The pregnancies themselves were completely different. Mm. Did you ever figure out why there was bleeding? I mean, you mentioned perhaps like the stress it, um, started it, but, and then it just, did it just taper off or? Yeah, it, it just tapered off around the second trimester. Mm. Okay. They never diagnosed you with a subchorionic hematoma or like the placenta being near the cervix or they never really gave you a reason for why you were spotting? The only thing that they sort of, that was sort of strange about the first pregnancy was that they later found I had cysts in the uterine wall. So I had two that were quite large and very, very painful. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that was really the only thing that they said was a little bit strange, but then that none of my tests ever came back. And here's kind of the thing too, because I only went to public hospitals, basically everything, there was no translation and yeah. I had no access to anyone who could translate for me at the time. So mm-hmm. there's a lot that I didn't know. And also the public hospital doctors are used to dealing with Chinese and Chinese in general are more comfortable with Chinese medicine and the Chinese medicinal beliefs especially my mm-hmm. husband's family. Yeah. So when I was having all of these problems, my husband's family was very strict with me. They wanted me to be on bed rest for the entire pregnancy. They refused to mm-hmm. let me take any medication for the pain that I was in, which was very severe. I mean, I was totally unable to walk for some days because of this, this cyst and where it was. Mm. They only wanted me to use Chinese medicines you know, that you would like apply externally and things like that. And so Mm. if the doctors said or gave any kind of clear diagnosis, I never saw those papers. But if they Mm -hmm. had said anything, it was never translated to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely a struggle giving birth here uh, as a foreigner, because even when you have a translator, it's part of the reason I didn't use a translator my second time is because I found that the translator would kind of just translate what they wanted to. Or what they felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all this conversation would be going on. And I'm like, but what's going on? They're like, oh, it's all fine. I'm like, but (laughs) I I know you said there was a lot more words than just, yeah, you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when you've only been here a couple of years or been in an environment that wasn't supportive to learning the language or, you know, just too busy. I, you know, it just takes a long time to learn Chinese at a deep level. And so it's, yeah, that's a huge concern. Yeah. A huge struggle. So this cyst that you had in the uterus, when did the pain start? Was that something you've always had or did it, was it started once you were pregnant and did it continue? It started during the pregnancy. It started in the, in the Mm -hmm. second trimester actually. And I did some research after the fact and kind of came to what I am comfortable with as an explanation for it, which Mm. is that when I had the bleeding around eight weeks, one of the doctors put me on progesterone, Mm -hmm. a very high dose and just right off the bat. And Mm. that had a very bad effect on my mood. It actually made me very suicidal for the first couple of weeks that I was on it. But Mm. my husband's family was very much like, oh, you you have to take this because otherwise you're going to lose the baby. Um, mm-hmm. But I couldn't take anything else. <laughs> so, so I was on that for a few weeks. And then once we switched doctors again, that doctor didn't mention anything about it, about taking mm. progesterone. And so I felt like all the other doctors are telling me that it's basically pointless to take it. So why are we continuing to pay for this medication? So I stopped. Yeah. And again, I stopped very abruptly. And again, that sent me mm. into another really bad depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a couple weeks after I stopped that I started noticing this very severe pain. Mm. And when I was researching it after the fact, I found a study in Guangzhou mm. about it being significantly over overprescribed specifically mm-hmm. in Guangzhou and that one of the potential side effects is these cysts. Interesting. So I'm comfortable with that as an explanation because I didn't yeah. have any issues with cysts at all for the second pregnancy and I did not take any progesterone throughout the second pregnancy. And it just kind of went away on its own afterwards. Yeah. Progesterone is a difficult topic because it is, it's not just in Guangzhou. It is widely, widely prescribed here. Yes. And I guess in other countries around the world. And one of the struggles with it is that people feel like, so both the patient and the doctors feel like if they don't try it and then they miscarry would they always regret it, right? So it's seen mm-hmm. as this like neutral, like, well, why would you not try something just in case? However, there are a lot of side effects. And I personally feel like they're very much overlooked. I just want to thank you for sharing that the struggles that you felt like with your mental health and with depression and all of that, because that's definitely one of the side effects that can occur along with um, extreme nausea and all of these different symptoms that we can normally experience in pregnancy can be made so much worse by progesterone. So again, I'm definitely not saying don't take it because I am not a doctor. I'm not your doctor, but just know that it's a difficult topic. It's a difficult thing because it definitely can be like, well, if I don't take it, will I regret it? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So the first pregnancy, you had a lot of bleeding and then you had a lot of pain, but then the labor itself, which we'll get into in a moment, went pretty well. The second pregnancy was like really smooth, no real complications. Yes. You were also coming off of this birth that was very empowering. So let's talk about your first birth and what was kind of your first sign of labor? My first sign of labor was uh, contractions, I guess. <laughs> like, not even, <laughs> I never really had a Braxton Hicks contractions at all. But when I was around 37 weeks, I thought, I'm tired of being pregnant. I want to try this raspberry leaf tea thing. I drank one cup and that night I started feeling uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, if I have this baby early, my husband's never going to forgive me. So <laughs> I, I, I stopped drinking that. But from that moment on, I started noticing the same sort of discomfort, abdominal discomfort every day. And mm -hmm. it would come and go and come and go and come and go. Mm -hmm. And it was enough that I was like, oh, this must be the time it's going to start. And then nothing. And that went on for about two weeks, actually. Mm -hmm. And then one morning I, I just woke up. I think it was about 5 a.m. And I just had this uh, real sense of calm. I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I just felt like a squeezing sensation. And I said, mm. it's time to go. <laughs> so we had this really beautiful traffic-free like morning sunrise drive to the hospital. And <laughs> it was just <laughs> idyllic in a lot of ways. <laughs> we got there at about 7 a.m. And I, uh, I gave birth at uh, 7.30 p.m. that night. So, wow. So during this two weeks of contractions stopping, contractions stopping, I know that that can be really like mentally and physically wearing. What did you do to kind of keep yourself sane, <laughs> so to speak, during this time? It was very difficult, but actually I was rescuing kittens. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, I remember so, you telling so me we, about your kittens. Yes, we were. We had all these little rescue kittens, like these two that we found under a car, and so I could kind of put my energy into taking care of them and getting them their medicine, and you know, <laughs> just making sure they were that those little little ones were okay. And I think putting my energy into helping something else. Mm -hmm really helped me in a positive way to take it off of what I was going through in that moment. Mm -hmm. So that was my main focus, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's huge to have like a project to really put a lot of focus and energy and time into mm -hmm. that you're kind of even sometimes okay with being like, okay, don't go into labor just yet because I have this other thing to do or complete first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was very worried when I realized I was going into labor because I thought we just got these two new little kittens and there's nobody who's going to watch them. So I can't stay at the hospital for four days. I have to come back quickly. And yeah, I just, all of my thoughts were on the kittens and how to make sure they were safe and fed and everything. So yeah. you, you talked about waking up in the morning and feeling a piece of calm and some tightening in the uterus. Was it then that you knew, okay, let's go to the hospital or was it kind of amping up through the night or yeah. Like when you say, when you realized it, you needed to go to the hospital, when was that? And what did that look like? I think the night before I had some of those contractions I'd been having for the last two weeks. And then mm -hmm. I really don't know how to, how to describe it but with my daughter. I just kind of, I, I literally just kind of woke up and felt that the tightenings were stronger and closer together. Mm -hmm. it, they weren't painful, but I just felt like I, it was time. Something was different. Yeah. 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 So can I ask in preparation for giving birth, did you do any preparation for giving birth? Any classes, any reading or anything like that? Yeah, I read um, Ida May's like childbirth, mm. beauty of mm -hmm. childbirth, something like that. I read half of it. I read the first half and I didn't read the rest <laughs> of the stories at the end, but I read the first <laughs> half because I found that her, her descriptions, her reassurances that it is a natural process that your body is naturally normally able to do, mm -hmm. barring some kind of complication. It's something that we're able to do. And, and the fact that that's what women have done since the beginning of humanity. For me, that was very calming because mm -hmm. I've always been interested in sort of the mind over matter. Mm -hmm. This idea that, that you can change the way you think about things will affect the way that your body responds to things and affect you know, how you view it. And so I, I kind of embraced that and thought, okay, I can just relax about the actual birth. It's going to be fine. In the meantime, I'm just going to do some exercises. So like I did, I did Kegels every day mm -hmm. and uh, I stayed very active. We lived on a five-story walk-up and I would go out multiple <laughs> times a day. 
so I was going up and down, you know, 30 flights of stairs a day, all the way to the car on the way out. So um, <laughs> I think, I think those together helped me really stay positive and healthy. Like I could actually overcome this and, and I could do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned though, like during this first pregnancy, especially that your in-laws were wanting you to stay completely on bed rest. How did you approach that and how, and how did your husband feel about that? How did he support you? And yeah, so one of the common themes with couples where one is, is Chinese and one is foreign is that living with the in-laws is just not a good idea. (laughs) There's just a lot of cultural of cultural differences and it seems to universally create a massive amount of strain, especially on the Chinese spouse, because mm-hmm. they are going between these two cultures and trying to navigate yeah. this. And so I had some friends who also had Chinese husbands and they were sharing their horror stories. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I don't want even the opportunity for any of these to happen. Mm. So very early on in the pregnancy, I told them, I'm not going to sit the month at the end. I'm not going to do these certain practices. And very early on, I started talking to my husband about that I did not want to live with his parents when the child came because I didn't want to put that pressure on him. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of the way that I phrased everything is you're the one in the middle. You're the one who's getting stressed and frustrated. Mm -hmm. But we as a couple are the ones who are going to raise this child and to mm-hmm. be together at infinitum. We're the ones who, who've chosen this relationship. So we need to mm-hmm. respectfully focus on ourselves and get some distance from your parents so that we can have this. And he needed some convincing from other Chinese men with foreign wives. But, <laughs> but yeah, actually, when I was about six months pregnant, six or seven months pregnant, we moved to a different part of the city mm. specifically mm-hmm. to create that distance. Mm. Yeah, I like what you're saying about emphasizing it's actually to protect him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not all about me. It's about you and caring about you and your, you know, your sanity and your emotions. And I can't think of the quite the right term, but yeah, protecting him and us as a couple. Mm-hmm. It's not that you don't want their parent, his parents, or you don't want any of this. It's like, no, I want to protect you. I want to protect us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was helpful. I think if I had, had gone at it from the perspective of, no, I just don't want to be, I just don't want to be part of your culture. Or I, I want my culture. I want my way, what I'm used to and I'm familiar with, which is the norm when you're in such a stressful situation, you're about to give birth in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends who are in that same situation have been very insistent that they have as close to the foreign experience as possible. And it's put a mm-hmm. lot of strain. I saw how much strain it put on them. And mm-hmm. I think if anyone listening to this isn't the same thing, maybe you approach it less from a, I don't want your side or your parents' side or something, and more from a, we're doing this together and we mm-hmm. plan to be together. So let's have it be about us. Let's have it be yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember you once saying, it's not your culture. It's not my culture. It's creating our culture, our family culture, and figuring yes. out what that looks like. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. You know, to some degree in every relationship, right? Because you're always, even if you're from the same nationality, are going to have different traditions and, you know, beliefs mm-hmm. and all of that. Of course, it's amplified when you are crossing um, nationalities or crossing cultures. Well, that's great. So how did you, jumping forward to your second birth, how did labor start with your second birth? With him, it was a very... Very delayed, very difficult. I had the same sort of thing where I started having contractions two to three weeks before his actual birth. Mm. And we prepared everything. We even like moved into a friend's house because they had a daughter the same age as our daughter, right? Mm. They were going to watch her when I gave birth. And we all expected Mm. every day that would be the day, right? But after Mm. two weeks, nothing. I hit 40-week mark and my husband started panicking. Mm. And your daughter was born at 39 weeks. Is that right? Yes. She was born at 39 Mm -hmm. weeks. Yes. Okay. So now you're 40 weeks and... Yeah, nothing, right? Yeah. um, (laughs) The doctors at this hospital started saying, well, she's already like one centimeter. She's been one centimeter. Every time you guys come in here, we don't know when it's going to start. And when it does, it's going to be really fast. So you just Mm -hmm. need to have her come in. But 
I really, really pushed to have us not to have us wait as long as possible. But at 40 weeks, mm. they put a lot of pressure on him and his family started putting a lot of pressure on him that mm. something could go wrong. And if we didn't go into the hospital and stay there, that I might lose the child that late in the pregnancy. So at about 40 weeks, 40 weeks in one day, I think I went in to stay in the hospital and I was there for six days before I actually went into labor. Oh, wow. Wow. Just waiting. A long You're time. just in the just hospital. Waiting. Just waiting. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. Um, because, of course, we couldn't go outside. There was COVID concerns and everything. We couldn't go outside. We couldn't leave the ward. Um, so it was just one tiny room in one little hallway for five days of just pacing back and forth. And the doctors uh, scheduled an induction for a Thursday mm-hmm. morning at 6 a.m., and, and this I is was, day five or day six of yeah, the hospital? Yeah, they, they had scheduled it on day two. They said okay. they were willing to wait until I hit week 41, and then it was time to go. Okay. So I guess I was 40 weeks and six days. And I the same thing. I had very, very mild contractions. They would start and they would stop. They would start and they would stop. I was doing mm-hmm. everything I could possibly think of to, to kick it off, and uh, nothing was nothing was happening. So... I actually had a major argument with my husband because he was so sick of being in the hospital and he was so like, what's wrong with you? You haven't had this baby yet, you know, and and (laughs) I was getting a lot of pressure from, from family and from friends were like, why haven't you induced yet? Why are you waiting? Just get it over with. Everyone started saying that I was under so much stress, that that's why Mm. the whole reason I, I wasn't going into labor was because I was just under so much stress. And so if I just got my stress under control, I'd be able to have this baby. So. Don't be stressed. <laughs> exactly. Don't be yeah. stressed. But we're all going to yell at you. So yeah. So we had a huge argument, and finally, I think I fell asleep at like one a.m. And I had a lot of people who were rooting for me and trying to, you know, I also had that side. A lot of people who were rooting for us, and a lot of people who were being very encouraging and everything. And so I, I think I was up at like one a.m. talking to some some other people here in China, just like, what am I going to do with this? So yeah, I I went to bed at 1am crying. I woke up at 3.30 and I had some really severe pain and I thought, okay, I don't want to wake my husband up because I don't want it to be fake again. So I waited for about 20 minutes and the pain was severe and it was becoming much stronger, much faster, much closer together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was when I I knew like, okay, I, I think it's actually time. So I went into the Delivery ward at 3.30 a.m., two and a half hours before I was supposed to be induced. Yeah. <laughs> it's a victory. Yeah. It's funny, like, how many times you hear that story that somebody's, you know, supposed to be induced and then the night before or they wake up in contractions or whatever. Yeah. It didn't work for me. It's a but <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so the first time around, you kind of woke up with contractions and felt, you know, the sun was rising and you're driving to the hospital and it was beautiful (laughs) and so much peace. And so then how did that, what did labor look like for the first pregnancy? Yeah, when you got to the hospital, what did it look like? What What happened? My daughter, it was, the whole labor was 11 hours and then I pushed for an hour and a half. So that through that 11 hours, it was a very gradual, gentle sort of a transition. I knew I was, you know, in labor and I was in pain. So for me, my labor pain was entirely in my thighs. Mm. I had none in my back, none in my abdomen, nothing. It was only my thighs. And so I spent the whole time basically bouncing on my toes because it was the only thing that would make it feel better. But like I said, for that labor the doctors and midwives didn't even come in the room most of the time. They gave us no coaching. They didn't really do anything. So I was just kind of in there with my husband, just like, okay, going to be strong, going to do this. And it, I felt like it was, it was long. It was tiring, but it wasn't impossible. It wasn't overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So. So you kind of had this private space, even though you were in the hospital, there weren't a lot of interruptions and it was you and him together facing this beast, <laughs> facing this together. Yes. Yeah. There was, there was very little, of course they came in and checked, um, checked dilation every now and then. And then I think around 
4 p.m. or so, one nurse came in. And one of the reasons I was not very keen on that hospital for me as well is because they did not even bother to try to speak Mandarin with me. They only spoke Cantonese with my husband. Oh, mm. Some okay. of the time. And so there was just a complete cutting me entirely out of the loop from some of the staff, not from all of them, but from some of them. And so at one point, a nurse came in and she said to my husband, which I only found out later, she said, okay, she's already like five centimeters. This is taking too long. Her water hasn't broke yet. So I'm just going to break her water. And all they told me to do was just to lay down. And then that's what they, she did. She broke my water. Mm. I didn't know. And I, if I had known, I would have been like, Let's maybe wait a little bit because I think that's supposed to happen on its own. But my husband also didn't know. He hadn't done any research into this other than how am I going to get through labor with my wife? So So they came in and they broke the the water for my first and that kind of sped things up a little bit. And then I was only around seven centimeters when they actually said, okay, it's time for you to go ahead and start pushing now. Hmm. Wow. And that was at like 530 that was at uh, about 6 p.m. on that night. Okay. Did you have any urge to push? Um, with the first one, I don't remember having a very strong urge to push. Okay. I think I could have waited longer before I actually started pushing with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they said, okay, it's time for you to push, I was like, yes, let's do it. Let's get this done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so for my first... I mean, I've been getting through the entire labor just by breathing exercises, staying in motion, and making jokes with my husband. We just joked and laughed the whole day. <laughs> oh, that's great. It was it was great. It set us up wonderfully for the actual pushing stage because at that point, I didn't really feel any pain. Oh, wow. Not in the sense that, that you, you think of when you think of childbirth. Like, I knew I was hurt, but I didn't really feel pain. I just felt like I needed to push forward. I needed to do this. It needed to happen. And I was tired, Mm -hmm. but I knew I could do it. So even the contractions, I don't remember them feeling once I was in pushing stage, it didn't, it just didn't feel like it hurt so much as I knew that it was tight and it was time Mm. to just, just go. So again, for that one, they did bring in an interpreter, but she literally only translated the word push and good the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, that's not really helpful because the nurse, the, the midwife was actually trying to coach me. She was trying to tell me mm. to rest. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But I felt like a lion and I wanted to get it done and <laughs> conquer this. And so I wanted to even be impressive. So every time I had a contraction, I was just, I would push once or twice and then I'd be like, no, I can do it a third time. And I would just go for it. <laughs> so I did tear quite, quite a bit in the end, I think. And I was very loud. I was very, very vocal. And I wasted a lot of energy in that way. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I came out and I felt very empowered. I felt like I went into a battlefield and came out the victor kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you did. So after the baby was born, did they um, put her on you or did they take baby girl over to the side? They immediately took her away, bundled her up and put her in a basket on the other side of the room. And they didn't want me or my husband to touch her. Oh, you might. Oh. <laughs> Oh my. So I had to scold them and my and gently prod my husband and say, that's your baby. You go and touch her. And they let him yeah. put his hand in there and basically like stroke her little face. And then that was pretty much it. For how long? The two hours? Yes. They wanted her bundled up the whole night. I wasn't supposed to hold her. I, I actually insisted that they give her to me after about an hour and a half after the birth because I wanted to nurse her. I wanted to see about nursing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time that I had any contact with her. Wow. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And I, I had a really hard time, to be honest, I had a very hard time bonding with her, actually, for the first six weeks or so. I felt like it was somebody else's baby. Mm. And I was just kind of like, I needed to take care of her, but I didn't have any of that. This is my child, that overwhelming feeling mm-hmm. with her. And I think part of that is there were signs of that immediately after the birth, because it did not bother me that I didn't touch her. It did not bother me that they took her away. I did not. I had a brief moment the next day when a nurse, when I was sleeping and I woke up and the baby and my husband were gone and my husband came back without the baby. And Mm -hmm. I thought that's, I should probably be more concerned about that. And he was like, oh, they're just washing us. Okay. But should Mm -hmm. I be concerned about that? She's a doctor, you know? So there was none of this, like 
this is my child and I should be the one in contact with her. I didn't have that with her. Mm. Not until the first, um, not until she was about six weeks old when I really, Mm. and I think a lot of that goes back to the beginning with the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy. When I didn't plan to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. I was very ashamed about it. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of guilt about that after her birth Mm. because here she Mm -hmm. was and here I was, there was a moment in time when I didn't want her and here she is living and breathing. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, I had to work through that myself as well Mm -hmm. and eventually I literally apologized to her even though she didn't understand anything I was saying you know but I had to apologize to her and I had to show her like mom does want you I do want you and I do love you and Mm -hmm. I think I gave myself permission to care about her at some point Mm -hmm. and it built up over time you know as babies become more interactive as well then I started to Mm -hmm. think like oh yeah she likes me too (laughs) you know Yeah. yeah I think not having any physical contact with her in the beginning was not helpful for that. Exacerbated it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's common. Like it can happen. It happens more frequently. And I think a lot of moms feel like I should feel this, but they don't Mm -hmm. for whatever Mm -hmm. reasons, like their circumstances. And yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Yes. Thank you very much. Do you want to go back to or move forward to your second birth? And so you've been in the hospital and you woke up at three and you're like, this is intense. Yes. It was very fast with my second. I think he was born about 8.25 or something like that a.m. Wow. And so whereas my daughter had been this gradual progression that we could kind of Mm -hmm. laugh through and everything. My husband and I had been fighting the night before he was very tired and he didn't believe me that I was in labor. <laughs> he thought, you're just starting again. <laughs> you're, just, you're just trying to get out of that medicine. <laughs> and um, <laughs> when we were in the delivery room, he wanted to lay down and take a nap. And I was like, I'm having these contractions. Why aren't you helping me like you did last time? And it was so, so much more painful, so painful mm-hmm. and so much more intense and so fast. And it Mm. was just, I think, even worse because he wasn't involved. Mm. I didn't have that support. Yeah. So when the uh, midwife came into the room and she was like, okay, well, she she checked me out. She's like, yeah, you're about three centimeters, so I'll come back in a little bit. And then with him, I felt like I needed to push. I very strongly felt the urge to push. Mm. And I actually, I went into the bathroom and everything and Mm -hmm. I, and then the midwife came running back in there and was like, is she, is she in the the bathroom? My husband's like, yeah, she's just. You know, she has to go number two. And, and I was like, no, 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 no. Let's get her up on the table. Let's check her out. Well, I did have to go number two, unfortunately, which was very awkward because I realized I must have with the first child, but I didn't know. My daughter yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> with the second one, I knew, but I felt completely out of control of my own body. Mm-hmm. I felt like this process was just tearing me apart and I had zero control over it. With my daughter, I felt like I could breathe through it. And I could work through it and it was going to be fine. With my son, I felt completely helpless. Like it was some kind of a, Mm. I don't know, some kind of another force controlling me. Mm. Um, Mm. And so with him, because I had been so worried and had so little sleep and been so stressed, I had no energy for the actual birth. Mm. And so by the time that I was in the pushing stage, I had no strength for it. I tried to remember and I hadn't been doing the exercises and the Kegel exercises and things like that that I did with my first pregnancy mm. um, because I was busy with a toddler <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so I didn't prepare myself for his birth at all and then to have all this stress part of the stress as well was that for those days we were in the hospital somebody else was watching my daughter and they yeah. were giving us mm. daily updates and telling us that she had never been separated from mommy and daddy before. And she started going yeah. into a very obvious depression. By day four, mm. she was crying continuously. Every time someone mm. would say mama, she would cry, you know, uh-huh. and she, she had a very hard time with it. So I was just heartbroken. I wanted to get back to her as fast as possible. And yeah. so when I went to labor, I didn't feel happy or glad or like, oh, it's almost done. I was bitter and angry and I just felt miserable. Mm. And so the pushing stage was incredibly painful and it was so, so fast. I did start pushing just by myself at about seven or eight centimeters. Mm -hmm. And this time I I could understand what the doctors were saying. And then the midwife was wonderful. She coached me very well. I did try to take breaks and take it easy because I didn't want to tear, but 
Mm. I got to a point where I just panicked. I literally panicked Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I could feel myself tearing. And I had a moment where my brain said, if you continue, you're going to tear. You have So everything in my survival instinct said, you must stop now. Mm. But my son had already crowned. Mm-hmm. And so his little face was in the birth canal. So it was not a good time to take a break. <laughs> and when they were saying like, no, 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 you, you cannot stop. You have to keep going. I panicked and I literally tried to get up off the table. Oh, wow. And so other midwives were holding my legs down and one of the doctors was trying to send my husband out of the room and he was like, no, 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 no. If I leave, it's going to be worse. Like I'm staying next to her. <laughs> and I saw this little exchange between the t- him and this doctor where they were trying to make him leave. And he was like, no, I'm staying. And then for most of it, I, I really couldn't even focus on what was happening. The first birth, I, I was hyper-focused. This one, I was like, nah, I was disconnected in some ways because I was so focused in on the pain. Mm. But when they had that exchange and I looked at my husband, I thought something's got to be wrong. What's happening? Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and he had this look of almost fear on his face and like strength. And he just looked at me and he said, you, you can do it. Mm. And I started crying because I was like, I, I don't have any strength. I can't do it. And I, li- I was yelling at them at that point. I can't do it. I can't do it. And mm. seeing my husband just like, you can do it and you have to. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I didn't feel any strength, but somehow I did manage to push one more time. And then my son came out. But when he was born, they took him out and the doctor came up, opened my shirt, put him on my chest and waited Mm. there to cut the cord. And I Mm. was like, oh, this is my baby. Mm. You know, it was like night and day from my daughter. I immediately felt like this is my baby. This is my child. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, this is mine. And I was sad when they took him away and all these things. The delivery and labor was so much harder than with my daughter, but I had an immediate connection with him that mm. I just didn't have with her. Thanks for sharing all of that. Okay. So the first one was born and kind of taken away and you really struggled with that like feeling of connection. And the second one was a difficult birth, but when they put him on you, you really felt a difference this time around. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what breastfeeding looked like for each of your children? Yeah, for my first, um, I had no idea how to breastfeed. I just kind of like <laughs> the nipple in there and I was like, and the doctors came in and they they saw me holding her and they were like, oh, you can do that? And <laughs> they just very roughly extracted a little bit of milk just to see if I had some. So my milk came in very early with both children. Mm. So mm. within a day of birth for both wow. of them. So by the time my daughter was born, I, I had had milk. So they were like, oh, yeah, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You just kind of stick it in there and she'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, she did not. She had a very, she had, there was a mismatch, I think, in the ratio between mm. the size of her mouth and the size of my yeah. nipple. And so she struggled in the first few days. And mm. my husband was not aware of how much babies cry. And so he started panicking around day two. And of course, the Chinese mentality is very much if the baby's crying, the baby is hungry. Mm-hmm. So his mother, as soon as the baby was born, his mother was kind of breathing down her neck because, of course, I'm supposed to be sitting the month and she's supposed to be the one taking care of the baby. Mm. Yeah. So she wanted to know everything. And she snuck out and bought formula and glucose water. Glucose water. Really? And when I was asleep on day two, I woke up from a nap and found them feeding her glucose water. Oh. So <laughs> it was day two. It was like not even a full 48 hours. And they were like, wow. nah, let's just do this. So I really started panicking because I, I thought, I don't, you cannot give that to my baby first off. And second off, your mom is not allowed to have any say in this at that point, because I felt like respect is, is one thing, but this is a health issue at this point. Because we're trying to do this this way and she's coming in and and changing these feedings. We cannot have a mismatch in this because that will hurt the baby. Mm -hmm. So I reached out and was able to find Dr. Layla, who I know has been on your show. Mm -hmm. We love Dr. Layla. (laughs) Yeah, she. I I reached out to her and explained, like, I don't know what to do. I'm in so much pain every time that I nurse. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem like she's getting milk. She's crying all the time. And my in-laws are stepping in and trying to do this. If I don't fix this problem, I'm going to have to give a child to my in-laws to take care of it because they're going to say that I'm not feeding her. So if I'm going to be the one taking care of the baby, I have to figure this out now. Mm-hmm. And she very graciously did consultation with me that night. And she was, was amazing. You know, she helped me learn how to express some milk. And she was like, take a video and show it to your mother-in-law that you have milk. And like, you know, she's, and she was really comforting to my husband and she, she showed us different positions. So for us, what we ended up having to do until my daughter grew to about two months old was that we had to let her cry until she would open her mouth really wide. Mm-hmm. So I would hold my breast in like a, a C sandwich hold. Mm-hmm. And my husband would kind of line her mouth up with it and hold her a little bit away. Mm-hmm. And then when she would cry and open her mouth really wide, my husband would kind of squish her onto the breast. <laughs> and we would wait a couple seconds and see if the latch was good. And if it was, then I would take her from him and just nurse. And if it wasn't, we would unlatch and try again. Mm. For the first six weeks, he had to also help me nurse her every day. <laughs> so. mm. But as once she got, got a little bit bigger, it was really pretty smooth sailing. I have a very strong oversupply mm. and a very mm-hmm. fast letdown. She did struggle with that somewhat because she wasn't getting a good mixture of four milk and high milk. Mm. And uh, it, because the letdown would be so fast, sometimes she would choke. So there were a couple times when we even had to give like her little, like my, had my husband had to give her CPR because she wasn't, she was just choking. She wouldn't breathe. Mm. So... Mm. It was not as easy as I thought it would be, but it was also not Mm -hmm. as hard as it could have been. So Mm. I think the key was definitely having Dr. Layla, having an actual lactation consultant sit down and show me how to do it and having a husband Mm -hmm. who was so supportive and so willing to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How to then moving forward with, you know, your, we're going to breastfeed. How did that you maneuver with your mother-in-law and your husband supporting? Yeah. It does seem like he was very supportive. He was there physically helping you. So how did you mend or work through the relationship with your mother-in-law? For that, I did have to put my foot down and basically tell them, if you bring any formula into the house, I'm going to throw it up because Mm. this is not what we've decided to do. And it's not what we need Mm -hmm. to do. We're going to do this path. We're going to be successful in it because I know we can do it. Kind of like with the birth. I was like, I know we can do it. Let's do it. So again, she, my mother-in-law showed up at our house multiple times to take the baby with her and brought multiple family members, female family members to try to convince me that and my husband that we could not possibly raise a child. Mm. And this happened for the first two weeks after the birth, she would show up literally every couple of days with the different female relatives to tell us how bad of parents we were and to oh, I'm so sorry. just oh. tell my husband that he couldn't do it. And then they would call him 20 or so times a day, also Ugh. different family members. It was the oh, mission goodness. of the family. And so on the last time that this happened, she came with my sister-in-law and, and I think a couple different aunts and... My mother-in-law does not speak Mandarin, Chinese, or English. They were speaking okay. mm-hmm. their local language, Kajahua. Mm. And so they they were not translating for me. My husband was very careful to protect me from the things that they were saying because he did mm. not want me to have any more stress or anything like that. So he tried to keep things very light and friendly with them as much as possible. Mm. But the very last time that they came, he kind of told me what these messages were about. And at this point, he turned to me and he said, do you think that you can raise the baby or does my mother need to do it? Because they are demanding that I ask you. And I think the look on my face must have been absolute hatred at that moment because (laughs) I looked at them and I basically, of course not, I will raise this baby. And they all looked me in the eye and then nervously laughed and they never came back or asked again. Mm. So I think I wish I could have handled it in a more peaceful way, in a more loving way. But because we lived so close to them, and I think we were so tired with a two-week-old and having to deal with this and all the pressure they were putting my husband under, I was done. I was done with it. I felt like I needed to put my foot down and it needed to be the end. Mm -hmm. So from that moment on, they never never pushed me about it. Did you stay in contact with them, though? Like, they're still involved in their lives. So they were able to move forward. That's good. Yeah, I know. I'm really grateful. They were like, okay. We can still be family. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, I think we talked about on a previous episode, like the difference between things that don't matter, like whether the baby has socks on or not, right? Mm-hmm. And not making those a huge issue. But when it comes down, you mentioned like this is a concern about our baby's health. This is where I actually need to put my foot down and be firm. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine how difficult that is. So thanks for sharing all of that. So then second time around, how did breastfeeding go? And how did your in-laws involvement (laughs) go? So in between the two pregnancies, my my mother-in-law, for context, is a USL. So yeah, she is one of the women, of course, who, for people who don't know, a USL is the woman who will care for the mother, for the baby and the mother sometimes the first month after the birth. And so her sister, my husband's aunt, miraculously had a child in between our two children. Mm, Okay. And so she was taking care of this. I think that healed her wounds a little bit of not taking care of my daughter was she was able to go and take care of this other daughter, Mm. Uh this other baby. So when she found out that I was pregnant again, she started showing me pictures of how cute and chubby this little baby was and telling me what they, (laughs) what they fed her and everything, you know, so like 200 milliliters of formula and rice powder from two months old, every wow. two hours. I, uh, wow. 200 milliliters? 200 every milliliters. Every two hours? Yes. Whoa. <laughs> and so I was very happy I took the stand that I did at that point. Uh, so. And for context, the baby's intestines are not mature enough at two months for rice powder. Like that's <laughs> biologically no, speaking, that that is not medically safe. (laughs) And I think we were a little bit vindicated in our decision because she actually, while she was caring for that baby, she actually ended up calling us and asking us, how do I take care of this diaper rash? This baby has such bad diarrhea and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, so we were able to like pass on some of what we did because our daughter also had some diaper rash because Guangzhou was very humid. Mm -hmm. But there was definitely a, a disconnect between our opinions on how infants should be fed. So for the second child, she was showing me all these images and stuff and trying to tell me. And my response was, well, you know, it's a really cute baby, but you know, I'm going to breastfeed, right? <laughs> she was kind of like, ah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, she kind of laughed it off. And, and in my husband's family, they often laugh off things that are, they don't know how to respond to emotionally. And because I'm mm-hmm. not from their culture, they often don't know how to relate to me. So oftentimes when we talk about serious things, it ends up with them just sitting there awkwardly laughing. So, <laughs> uh, so this was one of those, those kinds of situations. With my son, I had no problems nursing him from day one. He was born around 500 grams heavier than my daughter, and his mouth was much larger. Mm-hmm. So we had no problems from day one. He was ready to go. But for her, I think it was... A little sad. They kept bringing up, well, now you have a son. You give us the daughter. <laughs> you know. Oh, goodness. <laughs> kind of thing. So, so there are lingering feelings, I think. But everyone is very amicable at this point. I'm really glad that you have been able to still find a place where they can be involved. And at the same time, set your own boundaries. And yeah, it shows a lot of maturity, I think, on both sides. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And for reference, from at two months even, the total milk supply is like 800 milliliters a day. So like if they're feeding every two hours, that's like 80 milliliters at a feed. So 200 milliliters, you know, 10 times a day, maybe they're only doing eight is a huge amount more than (laughs) what is necessary. And they did yeah. say that that little girl had a lot of spit up. And so they were trying to compensate for all of her spit up by giving her more. Oh, to make, or, or that maybe that's why they were putting the rice in. Cause there is that thought of maybe the, it makes it heavier. So then it, it can so she won't stay in her much, stomach a little. So. Yeah. 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 There was one question that we didn't ask. Maybe, I don't know, in reflecting during your second pregnancy, you had a toddler, right? <laughs> How was that being pregnant with, you know, also having a child under two? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was pretty easy. My daughter's developed pretty quickly. So she she was mm-hmm. already putting on her own shoes and taking care of herself in some ways. And so mm-hmm. in some ways it was pretty easy 
just because the pregnancy was so uncomplicated. Mm-hmm. If I had had a complicated pregnancy, obviously it would have been a different story. But because it was a straightforward pregnancy, she was just kind of excited about it. And yeah. I felt well mm-hmm. enough to still like pick her up and carry her and play with her mm. till about the third trimester, you know. So I think that that wasn't too difficult. And then, of course, the next thought is, what do you do when you bring the second child into the house, right? How does the first yeah. child mm-hmm. respond? Mm-hmm. And she responded very well. She absolutely mm-hmm. loves mm-hmm. him. After she got over the trauma of being separated for a yeah. week, which was very hard on her. She had a very severe regression from that. But um, mm-hmm. after that, when we got her back, she was incredibly clingy. She had to have all of us mm-hmm. in the room all the time, 100% of the time. We could not mm-hmm. be separated from her. And she had been able to communicate and say things like, oh, I want a hug. I want milk or something. She was verbal very early on. Mm-hmm. And she completely stopped speaking when we got her mm-hmm. back. So uh, that first month, we were way more worried about her than we were about the new baby. Because mm-hmm. her yeah. behavior was completely, completely off. So yeah, after we kind of catered to her and just gave her a lot of extra, extra love. And we made her very involved with her little brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we never said like, oh, you can't touch him or anything. No, it was, it was very much like, you can come over, you can play, you know. We, and she very quickly decided that he was obviously part of the family and obviously mm-hmm. her baby. And <laughs> so he needed to be around her all the time. Mm-hmm. The transition, I think, to having two kids was a lot easier than I thought it would be in some ways. Like I was really concerned for jealousy and things like that, but it wasn't too mm-hmm. much of a problem as of now, <laughs> when they're still babies, we'll see in a few years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? Not particularly. If you could sum up maybe the things that you look back most favorably about each pregnancy and birth, uh, would you mm-hmm. mind sharing? With my oldest for the pregnancy, the highlight was the heightened sense of smell in the first trimester. Oh. I could smell flowers from like a kilometer away. And it was amazing. Um, I love oh, it. That's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that as a pro because usually yeah. it's like the garbage smell. I can't handle. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. For me, it was only sweet, flowery, lovely smells. Mm. And my nice. only food issue was not wanting anything bland. I didn't want like, oh, rice. Interesting. Like, rice would make me nauseous. So that was it. I thought that was that was pretty great. I was, was looking forward to that with the second baby, and I yeah. didn't get it. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And of course, you know, cons with the first pregnancy would have been definitely that cyst because it was it was very painful, very painful. Mm-hmm. For my second pregnancy, it was pretty neutral. I didn't really have any highs or lows. Mm-hmm. I think I was so focused on just being a mom and everything that I just didn't really notice any. I think I was very happy with the pregnancy because I didn't have a cyst that time. So I wasn't in a lot of mm. pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the first pregnancy, I was very tired. Second pregnancy, I was I was not. So mm, interesting. I think overall, the second one was very, very level, very level. Mm-hmm. And how about for the deliveries? For the deliveries, the first one was wonderful. If I had to say anything, it would definitely be relax. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, relax, you can do it. We can do it. Women can do it. It's it's okay and it's going to be okay. And we just have to relax and remember that. And for the second one, I did not relax. And I it was awful because mm. I didn't relax. I really firmly believe mm. that if, if I had taken the time to breathe and to calm down and to remind myself that it is a natural process that I'm designed to do and I'm able to do it and mm-hmm. I've done it before. And if I had kept a good spirit in the hospital and had my husband beside me, I think it would have been a much different story. Do you think that because the first birth was so empowering and then the pregnancy was so neutral, easy, that you kind of went into it without proper preparation? Yes. You know, because like the first one, you don't know anything. And so you're doing all this preparing, you're doing reading, you're doing thinking, you're practicing breathing techniques. And I feel like sometimes the second time we can be like, oh, well, I've done this before, so I don't need to. Yes. Yeah. Would you perhaps like recommend that people do maybe a refresher course or something to help them prepare, even though they've done it before? 
Absolutely. If I have a third child, I will devote myself to doing the workouts and the breathing exercises mm-hmm. and everything. And definitely I refresh your course. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. So with my fourth, I was like, I had done three, like my third, especially was like the best. It was just like, you know, but my fourth, there was extenuating circumstances that were causing a lot of stress on me, like emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that fourth labor was so much more painful. And I was mm-hmm. so disappointed in myself that I was like, why can't I handle this? This is like, I've done this before. I've been here. I can do this. But this is just so much more painful. But I do think that those circumstances that were causing that stress you know, on me, like, you know, um, with you being stuck in the hospital and your daughter is away from you and just kind of like nothing to do, but wait (laughs) for this Mm -hmm. baby to come and stuck in that room. Yeah. Yeah. I think that probably plays a big role in, in that being able to approach it mentally, have that, you know, stamina to be able Mm -hmm. to go and then to be able to be like, I can do this. Like, Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for being on the podcast and for being so vulnerable and transparent and sharing your stories. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, Jacqueline, until next time. Yeah, until next time. Bye. Bye. WeChat group itself and the courses that you guys put out when I was praying with my first were literally my only source for prenatal. Like, oh, dude, why are we not recording right now? Major plug. <laughs> <laughs>